So, so let me start with a question this morning. Have you ever just been completely caught off guard, like like out of the blue, you know, out of out, uh, never saw it coming, kind of walloped by something, and 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 just not expecting what happened at all? I, I have, which you probably could understand was a setup. You know, if I was going to ask you a question, I was going to tell you a story. Um, it was 2014. I was a pretty newly minted volunteer in student ministries here at Summit, and I was going on my first away trip with students. I was going to our spring camping trip. Uh, it used to be called Dangerous and Daring. We call it uh, Weekend of Valor now because that sounds less intimidating to parents. Um, and, and so it's my first trip away. I didn't know what to expect. I'm kind of nervous. I'm kind of excited. And, and the morning that this camp is supposed to start, it just starts pouring raining, like torrential biblical type of rain, and so I'm wondering, like, are we gonna go? Are we not gonna go? I, I, I texted OJ, and I'm like, hey, are, are, are we still doing this thing? He's like, oh yeah, it'll be fine, totally fine. Rains all day that day. In fact, it never stopped the whole weekend. We get to camp that night, and we realize, okay, we have gotta have a dry place to prepare food. Like, like if nothing else, we need an area where it is not raining so that we can like lay out our food and figure it out and, and get that all done. And so we are uh, out here and we're, we're kinda in the woods, we're on the edge of the woods, and we're like, well, we've got a tarp and we've got trees. So we take the tarp, we tie it to the trees, and we realize, well, like it's holding water. Like, oh, we've got a two-by-four in the truck for a project that we're going to do with the students. And so we grab that two-by-four, we hoist it up in the middle, peak the roof. We are so impressed with ourselves. We now have a dry area that is not holding water. It's running off. It is great. We are all set. Cook dinner that night. Go to bed. Still raining. Wake up the next morning. Still raining. We get breakfast done, and it is time to start our day, time to do all these activities that we have planned with, with these middle school guys. Well, one of the activities requires the two-by-four. We're going to take that out. So uh, about that time, John Parker, lead pastor, intrepid outdoorsman, he shows up and, and he sees the problem. He assesses it. He heads off to the tree line with nothing but like an oversized pocket knife and gumption. And he picks the perfect sapling. He cuts it down, brings it back, skins all the extra branches off, lines it up, comes under the tent that we have made with, with, this, uh, with this tarp. And he pushes it up in there and sets it down and has supported the roof, but in doing that, he's taken all the weight off of the two by four, and no one was ready to catch it, and so the two by four begins to fall, and it picks up speed, and it just nails me right in the forehead. And I was like, I was stunned. I, like, I thought this was a thing that they said like in the movies, or, or you only saw in the movies, like, I literally saw stars, that's like exploding lights in front of your head, and so like I staggered back for a second, and John turns around, his eyes are real big, he grabs me by the shoulder, he says, are, are, are you okay? And I'm new, and so I want to like laugh it off. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. Happens, happens all the time, no big deal. <laughs> and, and so we go on about our day. I, I'm like, do I have a concussion? Do I not have a concussion? I'm wondering all of, of these things. And about a month later, I became the student ministry coordinator here at Lake Mary. Whether or not those two things are related, we'll never know. Um, OJ swears that, that that's not the case. It, it turns out that day was supposed to be like a kind of a meet cute for me and John to get to know each other a little bit. That way John could assess if he thought I was the right person for the job here. And, and I'll, never, I'll never know for sure whether or not the two by four to the forehead was some part of the interview process, like if you can survive this, you are ready for anything Student Ministries has to throw at you, or, or whether it was, was just an accident. I'll, I'll, never, I'll never know. Maybe getting the job was payback for hitting me in the head with the two by four, who knows. At some point in our life though, 
We've all experienced that sensation of being completely caught off guard. It happens in our daily lives all the time. It usually, though, tends to show up like in conversations and in interactions with other people, right? Like, because let's be honest, we live our lives kind of only half paying attention most of the time. And so we're having a conversation with someone, we're doing something, and then they say something and it like snaps us to full attention. We're like, wait, wait, what, what did you just say? What's, what's going on? Sorry, let me, let me catch up. You know, let's, let's say hypothetically, like you're, you're on vacation, you're staying with some family and, you know, nighttime comes and you're going about your nighttime routine and toothbrush is there, toothpaste is there, you grab a toothbrush, toothpaste on it, you're having a conversation with your wife, you wet the toothpaste down, you start brushing your teeth, you're looking in the mirror, talking to your wife, you know, hypothetically, and, and, and all of a sudden she walks into the bathroom and she's holding a bag of toiletries and it's got your toothbrush in it. And she says those four words that no one ever wanna hears, four little words, that's not your toothbrush. And, and, and like you snap to attention, you're like, wait, what, 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 what's going on? And like that happens to us all the time, that happens in conversations, it happens in our daily life. Those things, hopefully yours is not a two by four to the head or, or a toothbrush that's not yours. Um, but it happens to us all the time. As we look at Habakkuk today, I think what we're gonna see is that same sort of being caught off guard. That's kind of the basis of, of, of this interaction that we see with Habakkuk and God. See, Habakkuk, he brings this complaint to God, but God's response isn't at all what Habakkuk was, was, was expecting. God catches Habakkuk off guard. So before we dive fully into that, let's talk for a minute about who Habakkuk was because there are some really interesting things about him that you should know. Like, first of all, what do we know about Habakkuk, you know, except for the, name, except for the fact that his name sounds like the noise that my dad makes when he's got something caught in his throat, you know. <laughs> like, what else do we know about Habakkuk? Honestly, not much. Habakkuk has, there's less that we know about Habakkuk than any other writer in the Bible. In fact, he's like, like, like OJ was saying last week that he was disappointed to find out that Malachi's name was not Malachi. When I first heard about Habakkuk, the first time I read it as a young Christian in the Bible, I, I had no idea. How do you pronounce this thing? Is it, is it Habakkuk? Like, what is, what is going on here? And, and so we don't know much about him other than the fact that, that he writes in the beginning that he is a prophet. That, that's all that we know. One of the things that I find really interesting about him is that he is different than the other minor prophets. In fact, if you remember back to Sesame Street, there was that song, one of these things is not like the others. Yeah, that's Habakkuk. Habakkuk is our guy. He is our minor prophet that's not like the others, because what Habakkuk offers us in these three chapters of Habakkuk isn't the typical interaction that a prophet has with God, where God speaks either directly to him or through a vision or something like that, and, and then the prophet goes and shares that with whoever the Lord has directed him to share it to. What we see in Habakkuk is more like Job. It's more kind of like the Psalms of Lament, where there's this back and forth. Habakkuk, he goes to God and he says, hey, this is what's wrong. And then we see God's response. And then Habakkuk goes, this is what's still wrong. And then we see God's response. And then he wraps everything up with a poem at the end. It's a lot like a lament or a psalm. And so what we know, what else we can tell about Habakkuk from, from his complaints is that the government is corrupt, that justice has been perverted where he is. And there's references to the rise and the brutality of, of the Babylonians. And so that all suggests that Habakkuk is writing in the latter half of the seventh century BC. And we think most likely he was writing under the, the reign of the unrighteous king Jehoiakim. So 
Habakkuk is there. Uh, uh, he's writing under the reign of Jehoiakim from about 609 BC until it was conquered by the Babylonian Empire in 598 BC. We know that Habakkuk's reason for crying out to God is, is likely because he lived through the reign of Jehoiakim's father, Josiah. Josiah was one of the good kings of Judah. Josiah, he, he instituted reform. He cleaned up the temple. He had the word of God. He had it read before the people. He called them to repentance. And when, 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 when Habakkuk sees how far the royal apple has fallen from the tree, it's hard for him to fathom the God that he knows is good and just and righteous will put up with the unrighteousness of someone like Jehoiakim. And so he cries out to God. God responds him crying out by saying, you're right, I see it. I see what's going on. I, I, I know all of this and I am going to deal with it. I'm going to send the Babylonians to conquer this place. And Habakkuk's reply suggests that he was super caught off guard. His reply is essentially, wait, wait, what? Like, yeah, I know this is a bad guy. The king is a bad guy, but have you seen the Babylonians? Do you know who they are and what they do to people? Do you see the way they crush and oppress? How, how can you, a good and righteous and just God, use them to bring about your will? It just doesn't make sense. Habakkuk can't reconcile it. And so, there's a reason for that. The reason is, that while Habakkuk is seeing all of these symptoms, he's, he's seeing this problem, it's not what he expects. And that's where the rubber meets the road, and that's where we're gonna pick things up this morning in Habakkuk. Habakkuk, he's, he's given his first complaint, God has responded, Habakkuk is caught off guard, and he offers this follow-up, and so now you can read along with me as we take a look at what God's response to Habakkuk's second complaint was. That's in Habakkuk chapter two, starting in verse two. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of an end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. So God's response to Habakkuk's second complaint is this. Write it down. Write down what I'm about to say. This is important. Write it down so that everybody can see what I'm about to say. It may take a long time. Babylon's gonna be brought down. Things are gonna be set right. And then and, and God spends the rest of chapter two enumerating all the ways that, that these horrible Babylonians, all the ways that each and every one of their atrocities is gonna be turned against them and used to destroy them. Did you catch in verse four what God says is the root of all of this? I love the way they put it in the New Living Translation. It kind of lays it out real directly for us. It says this, look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. When Habakkuk looked around, what he saw were the problematic behaviors both of Jehoiakim who was on the throne and the Babylonians who would come to, to depose him. But God saw beyond that. God saw beyond the behaviors to the problematic hearts. The evil, the violence, the injustice that Habakkuk was crying out about, they were all symptoms of a much deeper disease. The problem was not just the behaviors. The problem was pride run amok, both in the leadership of, of Judah 
and in the Babylonians that would come and conquer them. Habakkuk sees the symptoms and he wants God to deal with them, but God is saying, listen, I, I am gonna come and I'm gonna deal with all of this, but it's not gonna be just taking care of the symptoms. I am going to eradicate this disease. Now, it's easy to look at the bad guys in Habakkuk and think, yeah, you know what? They're the worst. And, and, and when you hear that the root of all of those bad actions is pride, it's easy to think, yeah, sure, that makes sense. But, but have you ever stopped to consider what pride actually is? So when it comes down to it, pride is actually faith, but, but it's faith that's been distorted. It's faith that's been placed in the wrong things. It's faith that we put in, 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 in one's abilities, in, in, in one's goodness, in one's fitness to judge right and wrong, in, in, in one's ability to keep the law, rather than putting our faith in the one thing that is worthy of having our faith, God. C.S. Lewis, he wrote frequently about pride in mere Christianity alone. He described pride as spiritual cancer, the complete anti-God state of mind, the cause that made the devil become the devil, and the chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. Think about that last one for a second. The chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. Isn't that the story of Cain and Abel? Cain's unable to, to, to accept that his offering isn't good enough. He's unable to accept that he is not as good as, as his brother, that his offering doesn't measure up. And so what does he do? He kills his brother as a result. And isn't that the story of the prodigal son? He, he goes to his father and he says, you know what? I want, my, I want my inheritance now. I don't care that you're still alive. Basically, I wish you were dead so that I could have your money and I could spend it my own way and live the life that I want to live. It takes him down on his knees, wishing that he could eat the slop that was being given to the pigs before he realizes it would be better if I was a servant at my father's house. And he turns around and goes back. And isn't it also the, the, the story of his older brother? He sees that his, that his younger brother, this prodigal son, has come back and his father has accepted him in and is so excited that he's home. But the pride of the older brother makes him say, I will not go in and celebrate with him. What about me? What about what I've done? Isn't it also the story of our own relationships so often? How, how often do we allow pride, maybe in the form of our need to be right or, or our refusal to apologize and admit when we're wrong, drive a wedge between us and our spouse or, or us and our parents or us and our friends or us and our siblings? The thing about pride is this. It's so easy to spot it when we see it in other people. So hard to see in ourselves. How many of y'all remember the hit 90s TV show, Home Improvement? It was a great show. It was appointment television in my house growing up. And for those of you who, who may be too young to understand the concept of appointment television, before DVR, there was this, this problem. If you were not sitting in front of the TV when something was broadcast, you may not get to see it again for a long, long, long time. You had to watch things when you were on, or you missed them until you caught them in reruns, but that could be a long time away. And so this was one of those shows that for my family, we were on the couch ready and waiting when it came on. The show, it starred Tim Allen as Tim the Toolman Taylor. He was kind of this lovable, bumbling oaf who, who was uh, uh, proud to a fault. In fact, 204 episodes, the plot was essentially un unchanged. Tim would make a mistake or he would do something wrong out of his, his hubris, out of his feeling that he knew what was right, out of this excessive pride that he had. And it would 
always be proven to be wrong. And then he would spend the rest of the episode trying to fix or undo the thing that he had done wrong in the first scene. And, and oftentimes, things would literally blow up in his face because of his pride. When we look around, it's so easy for us to see a world full of Tim Taylors. I bet in your head right now, you could name the people in your life that that's the way they go about it. They've got this prideful feeling that, that they know the answer all the time, that they know what's right and they're gonna get things right and, and, and it never seems to work out quite right. We see a world full of Tim Taylors without ever looking in a mirror and realizing that we're Tim too. Hopefully with fewer power tool related injuries. Guys, pride is this insidious internal infection. We're all carriers. It is no less prevalent today than it was in Habakkuk's day. The reality is that while it's so easy for us to highlight the faults of others, we miss the faults in our own heart. We make excuses for ourselves, And that's to say nothing of the fact that we are tempted so frequently to, to derive our sense of our moral uprightness by looking at the people around us and saying, well, at least I'm not that guy. Like, like that's the, 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 the actual deciding line. Like that is how we've been called to judge whether or not we're righteous. So what do we do about it? If pride is this insidious internal infection and we're all carriers, what's the antidote? In Habakkuk 2.4, the contrast that God holds up against the prideful person is the righteous person who lives by faithfulness. So what does that mean exactly? Well, being righteous means having right standing before God. And, and that's impossible to achieve for the proud because their pride causes them to put their faith in the wrong things. The righteous ones then are the ones who put their faithfulness in the right thing. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to live by faithfulness? Does it look like trusting Jesus for salvation? Does it look like living according to God's will for our life? Does it look like trusting him even in the worst of circumstances? I think it's all three of those things. See, first we've got to put our faith in him. In order for faithfulness to have any meaning in our lives, we've got to first respond in faith to the offer of salvation through Jesus. Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted three times in the New Testament, twice by Paul in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. And both times when Paul uses this, he has in mind trusting Jesus alone for our salvation rather than in our own abilities. Look, if you're here and you don't know about this whole Jesus thing, if Christianity is new to you, if you're not sure what you think, but you have this idea that, that what Christianity is about is this set of rules and, and, and always doing the right thing and living by those rules perfectly and that that's how you get into heaven, let me assure you that's not it. Now, to be fair, as Christians, we have not always done a great job of explaining what Christianity is about so, so I can understand where you would get that impression. But what Christianity is really about is grace. Grace means that even though you don't deserve it and you can't earn it, that, that, that you, you, God sent his son to pay the price for your sins and to secure righteousness for you, to make it possible for you to have right standing before him and have a relationship with him. Grace means that there's no secrets from God, that God knows every sin that you have already committed and every sin you will commit and he refuses not to call you his son or his daughter, his beloved. Since you can't earn it, grace is a gift, but that is a hard gift to accept because accepting that gift means admitting that you're wrong 
and that you can't do it all on your own. Ultimately, grace means letting go of your pride. The problem is we've all bought into the same lie that, that Habakkuk's contemporaries did. And really, it's the same lie that brought down Adam and Eve. It's the, it's the lie that says, I know better than God. I got this figured out. We put our faith in our own abilities. We trust that we can do it right enough on ourselves to get ourselves in, but you can't save yourself no matter how hard you try. You can't rely on your own strength to become righteous. The only way, the only way to become righteous is to live by faith, and that starts by accepting the gift of grace from God. So once we put our faith in him, we are called also to live faithfully, which means we've got to give our pride over to him constantly. Pride is still in us. It still lurks in our hearts. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon once called Pride the Destroyer, and it was on this passage on Habakkuk 2.4, and he said this, is there any man in whose heart pride does not lurk? When we fancy that we have clean escaped from pride, it is only because we have lost the sense of its weight through being surrounded with it. Y'all, I wish that wasn't true. And man, do I wish I wasn't so susceptible to this. Because here's the thing. I know that I can work harder than anyone in this room. I may not look like much. I may not be the smartest. I may not be the strongest or the fastest, but I know that I can outwork anyone. When my pride kicks in, I want to be the best, and the way that I found to get there is outworking everyone. That's, that's my struggle with pride. And I like to dress it up by, by calling it grit or, or a strong work ethic, but, but if it were truly just grit or a strong work ethic, it wouldn't come with this sense of, of, of being superior to other people. It's an ugly part of me. It's a part that I wish wasn't there. It's a part that I struggle with from time to time. Here's what I've realized over time. God doesn't give out extra credit for hard work or bonus points for, 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 for staying longer than others and pushing forward. I don't get more grace based on how hard I work. And no matter how much I wish he were, sometimes God's not impressed by it either. The reality of the situation is this, the, of the myriad of ways that Satan attempts to, 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 to separate us from God, pride is the hardest to fight against. Because before we become Christians, pride is that voice that tells us we don't need God. We don't have to do what those people do. We don't need to become a Christian. And then after we become a Christian, pride is that voice that's trying to convince us that when we look around and we see all the other Christians in the room, that we're doing a pretty good job because at least we're not those people. And it's also the voice that, that when things are hard, it, it goes to work trying to convince us that we don't actually need to call out to God for help. We can handle it on our own. We can make it through because after all, God helps those who helps themselves, right? In the end, we believe in God, but we still are back at that same place we were before where we don't actually think that we need him because pride is insidious. It's, it's always looking for an opening and so we must always be on guard, trying not to give it a foothold. We've gotta be continually putting to death our pride so that we don't unwittingly climb back on the throne as God of our lives. So where in your heart might pride be lurking? 
Where do you need to seek out that grace that God offers? And we're not always gonna get it right. That's, that's, that's reality as well. See, and that's a, that, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was, was a once and for all deal. Like it covered all of this because God knew that we weren't just gonna say, okay, I'm a Christian pride, see you later. We were gonna walk, and, and we were gonna walk on perfectly. He knew that wasn't the case. And so whenever we lose that battle, we find ourselves at the bottom of, of a pit of sin brought on by our own pride, we turn to God. We ask for his grace, we, we climb back up out of the hole, we pick ourselves up and we try again. Living by faithfulness also means following God's lead. But we get this twisted sometimes too though. See, these things, these things happen, we try to figure out God's will like we're trying to solve some sort of supernatural logic puzzle. It's, it gets like this sometimes. If I get five green lights in a row on my way to work tomorrow morning, then I'll know that I'm doing the job that God has called me to do and that he's blessed it and that I should stay. But if I get to work and Karen from accounting says, looks like somebody's got a case of the Mondays again, I'll know that God wants me to quit and start my own business. Sometimes it's not that dramatic. I, I actually ran into this a while ago. Uh, it was a Saturday morning and I'm sitting in my living room. I look out the front door. It's like a glass front door. And I'm like, oh, there's a car stopped in my front yard. I wonder what's going on. So I open the door, I walk out. And there's a guy out there and he's got a flat tire. And so he was not the type of person that you know, really understood how to do that. And so I have ch changed way too many flat tires in my life. And, 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 and so I, I helped him out and we started up a conversation. As I'm talking to him, he says this thing. He says, well, I guess God doesn't want me to buy a computer today. Interesting. So he continues on. Well, like I was, there's this really good deal at Best Buy. I was on my way to Best Buy. I was going to buy this computer because I thought the good deal meant that God wanted me to have a new computer. I could you really use one for, for, for work and, 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 you know, mine's super old, but I don't know. I got a flat tire. So that must mean that God doesn't want me to buy a computer. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. And, and as I thought about it more and more as he drove off, and I'm like, man, like, maybe, maybe that's not what God is trying to tell you. Maybe he's trying to tell you, like, don't, don't drive through construction sites or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you getting a flat tire doesn't necessarily mean God doesn't want you to buy a computer. It's not about how many green lights you get on your drive to work. It's, it's really following God's lead is really about listening to the sound of his voice because it's the sound of a voice that we trust that changes things. Who is it in your life who when you hear their voice, it gives you that sense of calm, it gives you that sense of knowing that you're gonna make it through and things are gonna be okay? Is it your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your best friend? Who's the person in your life? We gotta learn to hear God's voice in that same way. God is a guide, he's an example, he's also a relationship and we've gotta get close enough and stay close enough to him to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us so that we can follow what it is that he has for this because this is super important right here when it comes to faithfulness. Listen, listen to this, faithfulness is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of those nine things that Paul lists out. And what that means is this, being truly faithful means allowing God's faithfulness to flow through us. We don't white knuckle faithfulness into existence. We don't claw our way to faithfulness and hold on. We listen to that voice of God. 
and then we do the thing that he tells us to do. On a practical level, what that means is that faithfulness is not gonna look exactly the same for all of us. It's probably gonna mean letting go of something old or doing something new. I don't know what that is for you. It could be many, many things. And over the course of your life, it probably will be many, many things. It it, it may mean finally dealing with that addiction or that thing that's attached itself to you that you just can't shake. It may mean learning to say you're sorry. It may mean going to Africa and doing something like that that scares you. And it may ultimately mean starting your own business, but, but not because you're tired of listening to Karen quote office space to you all day, every day, but you do it because the voice of God, the voice that you're hearing in your heart when you spend time with him is telling you to take that step. Whether it's something that you do individually or corporately or vocationally, it is something that is going to, 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 to call you to do something new, let go of something old or do something that scares you a little bit. That's what faithfulness is gonna look like. Whatever it is, when you live your life in tune to the Holy Spirit like that, where you can hear his voice, you enable yourself to live faithfully to God and far more faithfully to who it was that he had in mind when he thought you up. Lastly, faithfulness also means living in light of that which God had promised and and, and trusting that those things are true even when things are bleak. God promised Habakkuk that the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. He encourages him, though it it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and not delay. Look, the day that he's speaking of when everything will be set right, that is the day when Jesus returns. And until then, we live in this this, this in-between, this already not yet kind of tension. We know that help is coming. We've got to hold on until it gets here. And we have the Holy Spirit to walk alongside us in that. And the reality is that in this place, things are messy. Things don't happen the way they wish we would. Things are hard and we cry out to God and and, and we ask him, when are things gonna be set right? How much longer, God, is this gonna take? And his response is the same to us as it was to Habakkuk. Help is on the way. Though it linger, wait for it. And that's hard to hear. And I know that. And it's even harder to wait. And it's hard to stay in things for the long haul. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with Jim Keller, who was here and talked about uh, Malachi last week, and, and he's also a licensed counselor in town. And so what he was saying is this. Oftentimes, he has new clients, and they come in, and they get started in counseling, and, and things start to go well. But after a while, they get to this place where it's like frustrating for them, where, where they're not seeing what they wanted to happen. And, and, and what they really wanted, of course, they want things to get better, but they want things to get better now. And in that place, what he said was this, they've, they've, they've got a choice. Either they can stay with it, they can do the work, they can wait until that healing comes, they can wait until things get better, or they can choose to walk away. And he says, sometimes they walk away. They don't always stay because waiting is hard. But the only way actually out is through. It's not easy, but it's the only way. So every time that we listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives and we respond in faith, we get to see what it looks like for God to be at work in us. And over time, that builds this sort of faith that can endure the hard things. Because what we see is a history of God's faithfulness to us. 
and remembering is so important to faithfulness. And I've shared a little bit about this story in the past, but, and it's a story really for a different day, but there's a reason that my daughter's middle name is Faith. Remembering is important to faithfulness. So in chapter three, we get to see a different Habakkuk. The complaints are gone and he writes this poem or perhaps it, it, it could be a song and it recounts the ways that God has shown up throughout the history of Israel, the way that he has proved himself true to his people. Habakkuk paints this vivid picture of a faithful God who conquers all. And he builds to this crescendo in the final three verses. Here's, here's what we get. Here's the final declaration from Habakkuk. This is chapter three, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to tread on the heights. The only way out is through. We have no way of knowing when the deliverance will come, whether it's right around the corner or whether it's only gonna come in the final setting of things to right, but though it linger, wait for it. And while you wait, remember the ways that God has shown himself to be faithful to you in the past. And remember the ways that God has shown himself to be faithful to others. That's the reason that we say that your story told truthfully is good news. Because when you share your story, your story gets to become the good news for those around you who otherwise might, might just want to give up. It becomes a thing that empowers them to keep going. Your story becomes the story of God's faithfulness, not just to you, but to the family of believers. You can borrow hope from someone who has a story of making it through. So share your story. Let other people borrow your hope. And look, I get that it doesn't seem fair. And, 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 and if you think that God doesn't understand the pain that you're going through when you're in the midst of one of these things and the only way out is through, remember that the cost of our forgiveness, that grace that was secured for us, the cost of that was the life of his son. And remember that for Jesus, the only way out was through and he lived it, he walked through it. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane for the cup to be taken away and when it wasn't, he carried his own cross to the place where he would be hung upon it and died. That's what God's faithfulness to us looks like. We don't get to choose when or where or to whom uh, we're born or the trials that we will face, but in those trials, we have a choice. It might be up to God alone to determine what faithfulness will look like, but it is our choice as to whether or not we will be faithful to the one worthy of our faith. That was God's call to Habakkuk. And that's his call to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for always being faithful to us. Thanks for making it possible for us to be in a relationship with you despite the cost that it had for you. Help us to put to death our pride. Thanks for grace when we don't. Draw us close to you and teach us to hear and know your voice. Quicken our hearts with the dreams that you have for our lives. Whisper to us where it is that you want us to go and give us the courage to follow you there.
Be with us in the hard parts. Surround us with people who can encourage us, who can share their hope with us when we need it. God, help us to find peace and rest and maybe even joy in the midst of our struggles. And God, I ask it all in the name of him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.